I didn't hear a whole lot of amens on that song. And if you, yeah, hear what JT said, it's an oh me song, not an amen song. Actually, it is an amen song, but maybe, maybe by the end of the message today, you'll be a little more prone to amen it than at the beginning, because it is, those are hard lyrics. John Newton learned hard lessons, and he learned those lessons in hard places. He learned them, and it's a cliche, but he did learn them in a school of hard knocks, but he had a good teacher, a good teacher, good in the sense of good in his character, good in his nature, and good in the sense of he knows how to carry out a lesson plan after he's developed it. So not just a good teacher, but a good teacher. All right. So let's look at the text and listen to what the psalmist, and I believe David, I believe David wrote Psalm 119. So if I say David, then I'm, I'm letting you know kind of where I fall in that particular uh, discussion. But again, we're in Psalm 119, and this morning we're at the, the letter Teth, starting in verse 65, Psalm 119, verse 65. So the Bible says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. According to your word, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word today. We read these words, and uh, Father, I pray that they'd penetrate our hearts. They're alive and they're vibrant, they're sharp, Lord. I pray that they would do your work today in each of our lives, not just today, God, but that the lessons here that um, Lord David learned um, in this difficult school uh, would be lessons, Lord, that we see you're teaching faithfully to us, and Lord, help us to be good students, all right? And I pray that, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 119, as we've been working our way through it, includes in it 176 verses, and each of those sec- each of those verses are divided up into sections, 22 sections, each of them representing one of the Hebrew letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's an acrostic, meaning that not only do each of those sections represent one of those letters, but in each of these verses, the beginning word begins with that letter. It's an amazing work of poetry. And what is different about this section than the one we saw last week and the ones we've seen prior to that is where they would begin most of the time with a different word that starts with that Hebrew letter. In this particular text today, one word is used over and over and over again through the course of the passage. And I've put a kind of a loose translation of it up on the screen so you can kind of follow along with me. It's a translation that, that I worked on this week, but I've used Alex Moitner. I've used others to help me with my Hebrew. I, 
I enjoyed Hebrew. I actually learned Hebrew better than I did Greek. But don't ask me to speak it, because like I said last week, my tongue won't make those sounds. It doesn't. It, it's not wired to do that. Um, but the word is good that begins these verses and is used throughout this passage of Scripture. So uh, follow along on that, that translation that I have there. Good you have done with your servant according to your word. Good judgment and knowledge teach me, because I trust your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, or I erred, but now I keep your word. Good you are, and good you do. Teach me your statutes. Smear upon me lies, do the proud. Or, the actual word there is forge, like you would forge something. Um, so forge against me might be one way you could actually translate that. But either way, there's work being done to, to um, slander. So smear upon me lies, do the proud. But I wholeheartedly keep your precepts. Insensitive like fat is their heart. I am elated by your teaching. Good for me it was that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. Good for me. The instruction of your mouth, more than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Clearly, the psalmist wants us to see and hear about something good, right? I mean, clearly that's his point. And he wants us to understand not only something about goodness, but understand something about the source of that goodness. And so I think the focus of the passage zeroes in there on verse 68. Good you are. And good you do. If we, as God's people in a broken, hurting world, can just let that biblical truth burn itself into our hearts, good you are and good you do. I will not always see it that way. I will certainly not always understand it that way. And not until, as we see in Romans 8, we are the other side of glory and the groaning has stopped, will we understand it. Nonetheless, good you are and good you do. And because God is good and because he does good, then the psalmist says that's the description of how he has dealt with me in the past and how he deals with me today. It is good. And because he is good, then what I learn from him, discernment and knowledge, are good lessons. I need to share in the goodness of God, right? I need to learn to be like him as he teaches me. So he is good. So he wants to teach me goodness, good discernment, good judgment. And he wants me to teach, he wants to teach me all of these things according to his word. So his instruction is good. David says, it's better, and and David's a man who would know the value of a dollar or the value of a pound of gold or whatever. Your word is more valuable to me, he says, than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. So God is good, and he wants to teach us good. I'm ready to enroll in that class. Hang on. Because to matriculate into this school... You need to understand what this school holds for you as far as your course of curriculum, as far as the classroom environment. What's the lab where we begin to work out and learn out 
this goodness? Well, it's one that few of us would choose voluntarily, right? I'm, even though I know this is what God's Word says, and I know this is what God wants from me, all this goodness is found and experienced in a way that few of us by choice would choose it. Yet nonetheless, these lessons are learned through affliction is the word the psalmist uses. Literally, it means to be pressed down, to be pushed down, to be humbled. And this is, this is the classroom. And he says, it's good for me to be in this classroom. It's good that I was afflicted. It's good, God, what you are doing. So let's, let's kind of take a look at this, all right? Again, verse 68, you are good and do good. Good you are, good you do. Teach me your statutes. This is who God is, and this is what God does. It's over and over and over in the Old Testament. I was, I was just going back through and reading Psalms 25. Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 86. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. This idea of God's goodness and God's hesed love, his covenant love, his steadfast love and mercy that we've seen over and over, that last week David said the earth is filled with this steadfast love. It's constantly paired up with God's goodness. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 106, Psalm 107, and Psalm 118 all begin with the same words. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. God is good. Amen? And so, and we might say, and He's good all the time. Yeah, amen. Let's just be careful where we ride those cliches. They're not cliches, but... They can become that if we don't really understand what it is we're saying. God is good. And from this goodness, from that fountain of who God is, flows everything. Everything. And everything that comes to me, everything that happens to me, everything falls under this truth. I I trust that, church. I rest in that. I have to. We have to. Otherwise, and we could, this is a whole nother long, long discussion. Otherwise, we trust God's goodness or listen, we are the collateral damage in a cosmic battle of dualism. We are, we are the collateral damage that just wreak havoc upon us When on one side is God who is good and on the other side is Satan who is bad. And, oh my word, who's going to win? How's all this going to play out? And if we hold to that dualistic idea, then we are simply being beaten up by one side and the other in this battle to see who's going to win out. I, I can't do that. I will. God never created us to live in that. God is good. He is sovereign, good in all that he does. And as Paul said in Romans 8, we will see that one day. There is no comfort and no hope in this dualistic understanding of God on one shoulder and the devil on the other. Let's see whose voice is the loudest and who can pull hardest to get our attention. There's nothing in that that's good for us. God is good and all he does is good. And you have done good with your servant according to your word. 
good you have worked, accomplished, it's a past tense word there, to your servant. Literally, it means slave. And one other meaning of that word is worshiper. We are a servant to a slave to what we worship. And here the psalmist is saying, good you have done according to your word. You see, one, one writer said this, God's word is designed for our good. And what God does to help us go deeper into that word is good. God's word is good and what he does to take us deeper in his word is good. And so that's the message that he says. God is good and all he does is good in verse 68. And from that now begins to flow all of this other that we read there. Good, he says, is God. Secondly, good is the discernment and knowledge that God wants to teach us. Seek it, the psalmist is saying. Seek it. Because good, God is good and because God is a good teacher, then what he desires to teach us is good. So that we can grow in that goodness, so that we can become more like him, so that we will know goodness. Listen. So that we will know goodness, see it for what it is, be able to distinguish the difference between what is good and not good, be able to hear the difference between what is good and not good. So he says, Lord, teach me discernment. Teach me good judgment. Literally, the, the idea is there is sensitivity, sensitive judgment. I want the, my spiritual nerves to be alive enough that I can touch it and know that it's hot or touch it and know that it's cold. I want my taste buds to be developed so that I can taste it and know that I need to spit it out quickly or savor it. That's discernment. That's the ability to, to rightly judge goodness. Lord knows we need that, right? Huh? Do we, we need that in our, in our day and age. Discernment, good judgment. And also he says, good knowledge teach me. That's, that's understanding, that's wisdom. Because I believe in your commandments, the psalmist says, because I believe your commandments, I have foundationally trusted your word, So what you teach me about your word is good, and it is through that good word that I begin to learn what goodness is. I begin to learn how to judge, how to discern, how to apply wisdom. The Bible is full of all kinds of truths, but there are a lot of situations that the Bible doesn't talk about, right? There's a lot of situations the Scriptures do not directly address. So what do we do with those? That's where good judgment and discernment and wisdom come into play. That's where we're able to look at God's word and say, God, I trust your word. Now help me learn how to apply it, how to discern what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing or even what I'm about to say. One writer said, God does not bless with discernment a negative attitude toward his word. So you can't hold God's word lowly. You can't value it or you can't devalue it and expect to be wise or knowledgeable. Now, that alone is so contrary to the world's understanding of knowledge and truth, right? Of what is good and bad. If we trust that his words are the best counsel in the world, then we can trust that he's going to teach us, according to that word, how to apply it. 
And there's so many situations where the scriptures are just not explicit. And yet, through the wisdom and knowledge, the discernment, the sensitivity, the taste, spiritual taste buds, we can begin to know how to apply it. I'm reading a book right now, and, and, I, and I've written a little bit about it. I wrote a, the, the newsletter article this month. Um, it kind of referred to Daniel Darling's uh, book, Away With Words, Using Our Online Conversations for Good. I said in that article, you know, when I was in seminary, they did not teach us how to be a cyber shepherd. I don't know if they're teaching that now or not. But how to how to digitally shepherd sheep was not something that we learned. But my goodness, do we need it. And and so I'm reading this book with a sense of urgency. I'm about two-thirds of the way through it now, and I just finished a chapter on discernment. How we, what it is, how we develop it, and how we exercise it. I can, I can post this for you, but there's seven questions. And if you just want to listen to these, uh, this idea, okay, God, you're good. What you do is good. Now teach me good discernment. Teach me good knowledge. Lord, help me seek that. And I'll just real quickly give you these seven questions that, that Darling puts in his book on how we can practice and how we can discern if what we're about to say or post or be involved in is something that's worthwhile. Number one, is this conflict or this issue a matter of Christian orthodoxy or is it a matter of just foolish controversy? Is this a gospel issue or is this just whatever? Number two, is what I'm about to publicly say actually true? Now, you know, don't you, that just because Fox or CNN or somebody else says it does not necessarily mean it's true. Be careful to like it. This is what I'm about to publicly say actually true. Number three, am I applying the law of love? Number four, what is my heart motive? Number five, am I the person to speak at this moment? One of his basic premises throughout this book is, you know, sometimes we just need to be quiet. The world doesn't really want to know what we think about it. And the world will continue to revolve even if they don't know what we think about it. Am I the person to speak at this moment? Number six, if I am, and I said I'm going to go ahead and go with this, am I choosing my words carefully? And then number seven, through this, will I be known for my love to the brothers and sisters in the Lord? Just seven basic questions. God, you are good. What you do is good. Teach me that goodness through discernment and judgment. It's critical for our day and time. It's badly missing today from our culture. It's badly missing in the church. And we need to ask God to develop it. Only through spiritual discernment and biblical wisdom are we going to be able to make the kind of sound judgments and understand those things that are going to honor God. God is good. The lessons he wants to teach us are good. Thirdly, good are the reasons for the afflictions that come into our lives. Good for the re- good are the reasons for the afflictions we experience. And I, the word that came to mind all week is just trust it. Look at verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. In between that, one of the means by which God brings affliction to us is through afflicting people. All right? Don't start making a list of who those are. Okay? You know, don't start kind of categorizing people. Okay? Their comfort, their affliction. Their comfort, their affliction. It can change from day to day, right? 
Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. How does God answer our prayer for discernment and knowledge? The school of hard knocks. How does God teach us what it is to be good and to walk in those footsteps of goodness as he did? The best classroom for this, the lab where we learn these lessons, is this difficulty, affliction, suffering. It's, it's, it's gonna, we're going to find different words. In next week's passage, it, it tells us that in faithfulness God has afflicted us. Wow. First, how do we know we need these lessons? Okay, how do I know I need this lesson? Well, it says before I went astray, but now I keep your word. And and so literally that's what it means. It means astray, to wander off the path, to go into areas where I should not be. And that was... Before I was going astray. Now that's been corrected. So do we need to ask for God's correction in our lives, for his discipline in our lives? Yes. And it's not just a matter of being a slow learner. It's just a matter of being in this broken world, in a, in a person who has a sinful nature that by God's grace is being transformed. But, you know, I need these lessons. I need them constantly. I need them consistently because I am constantly and consistently prone to wander, to err, to be foolish. And so, God, I need these lessons. I, I need you. I can't believe I'm about to say this. I need you to afflict me. Oh. That's his lesson plan, to be laid low, to be brought down, to be humbled. And it's an imperfect tense in the Hebrew, which you can be, I need to be careful with this, but it's kind of an ongoing lesson. It's a constant correction. I need constant instruction. I'm going to use first person here, okay? If you want to put yourself in that camp with me, I welcome you to. I don't want to be alone there. I don't think I am, but I need it constantly. I need it constantly. God is good. And what he does is good. And what he wants to teach me is good. And the ways he wants to teach me that are good. Even though they're hard. He's committed to my well-being. I know I am his child because he is willing to correct me and discipline me. Spurgeon said, a spanking does a rebel no good. It doesn't. It just hardens their behind and hardens their heart. But discipline, correction to the heart of a child is good. And so God is committed to that. And here's where I want us to go for just a second as we think about that. I want us to think about Jesus for just a second. And I'm in Hebrews, if you want to turn there, Hebrews chapter 2. There's a great, great passage in Hebrews chapter 2 about Jesus freeing us from the bondage to the fear of death, to which, apart from Christ, we are slaves to that fear of death. And there's this beautiful section in the the, the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, 
where we see part of what went into Jesus being that great deliverer who could free us from that fear of death. Hebrews 2.10 says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You hear that? God was working in the life of his son to make him perfect through suffering. Now, we'll talk about that in just a second. Down in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. That's you and me. We share in what? Flesh and blood. He himself, being Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, how did he do that? What had to happen in the life of Christ for him to be able to help us? Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To be our atoning sacrifice, he had to be made like us. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So, wait a minute. So is the writer of Hebrews saying that Jesus in some way was not perfect? No, again, the word for perfection there, telos, is to be fulfilled, to, to be at its completed desired end. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus could not really know what it is to be fully human if he didn't suffer like a human. Without sin, spotless in every regard, but he suffered like we did. It says in Hebrews 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications in Hebrews 5, 7. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And then verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's, it's an amazing aspect of this mysterious nature of the Incarnation. That God became flesh and dwelt among us. And for him to fully identify with us, he had to be made like us in every way except without sin. And that was through suffering, through learning obedience. And he learned obedience by what he suffered. And here's what D.A. Carson writes in his book, How Long, O Lord? There is a certain kind of maturity, listen to this, that can only be attained through the discipline of suffering. If even Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered, what ghastly misapprehension is it, even arrogance, that we assume we should be exempt? Yes, Gerald, pray for affliction. Because only through affliction will you be Christ-like. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. He was perfect in every way. I'm hard-headed, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, rebellious, uncompliant. Am I exempt from that classroom that Jesus was required to go through? What idiocy is it that would think that? God's discipline 
And our afflictions, if we look at the scriptures, can be varied, right? I mean, a biblical record of what these afflictions can look like is, is diverse. It can be war, plague, illness, rebuke, personal thorns like what Paul prayed would be removed from him. It can be bereavement. It can be the loss of our status. It can be personal opposition, as we see in the next two verses. It can be persecution. It can on and on and on. But all of these fall under the good hand of God for the good purpose of those that are called according to him. I hold on to that. James Boyce said that verse 71 is the exact equivalent of Romans 8.28. Psalm 119.71 is the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28. It is good that I was afflicted. All things are we working together for good to those who love God. So the psalmist and Paul are in agreement. It's a good thing that we are afflicted. And sometimes the affliction we face is afflicting people. <laughs> the proud, the arrogant. The psalmist talks about them a lot. He's not finished talking about them. In verse 51, they derided him. They ridiculed him. They, they kind of mocked him, right? In verse 61, they ensnared him. They tried to set a trap for him. And now in, verse, in this verse, they slander him. They lie. They're, they're forging lies against him and they're trying to smear them against him. But guess what? They don't stick. Right? They don't stick. Their lies don't stick because his life refutes them. That's what we see. And look at the contrast in their hearts. There's, I, I, this, this image has just been, it's, their heart is fat. It's insensitive. Okay? There's no feeling there. There's no nerves there. There's no way that they can really sense that. It's insensitive. On the other hand, look at the contrast. My heart is whole. My whole heart is seeking your word. My whole heart is seeking after. No, it's delighting in your law. So there's that contrast again between. So it's no wonder that the unsaved, that those who are not in Christ aren't sensing Number one, they don't see the goodness of God and they don't see the good purposes in what God may be bringing into their lives because their hearts are unfeeling. Ezekiel said, it's a stone heart, it's dead. And we need a new heart, a heart of flesh. So the psalmist can say, there is profit in my pain. I learn more about God. I learn more about me. I'm able to better discern and taste and see what is good and, and what is not. It's kind of like what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us an exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. So as I've been working through this this week, uh, uh, my mind went to all kinds of different individuals. People who I've read about and heard about who could stand up and say, God is good and I've learned of his goodness through my affliction, through my suffering. And I thought about Joni Erickson Tata. Dive in the water at 17 and come up quadriplegic with a broken neck. And all that has come from her life and her ministry in all these years since then. I thought about the house church leaders in China. And the martyrs in China. 
who every day of their lives are suffering in ways that we can't fathom as comfortable Americans. And the church is growing and multiplying and exploding there even still. That's how they could say God is good and what he does in our persecution, what he does through a communist regime is good. Wow, they could say that. I thought about Elizabeth Elliot in, in the loss of her husband. She, she said this in the gates of splendor. God is God. And I've, dethroned, I've dethroned him in my heart if I demand that he acts in ways that satisfy my sense of justice. She said, it's the same spirit of those who taunted Jesus. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. There is unbelief. There is rebellion in the attitude that says, God has no right to do this to find men unless dot, dot, dot. So I looked at it. And, and then I just thought about our own church family. We got, we got people in this church who have suffered are suffering, going through difficulties, had all kinds of things happen to them and family members and folks like that. And, and, and I've seen in their lives and I've heard in their words, God is good and I have learned good things through this. And I'm continuing to learn about God's goodness through this. Alright? One of those guys, hey, he's my neighbor, he lives right across the street from me. Scott, come on up here. Or do you want to do it from back there? You need to exercise. I need a microphone too. He's loud, but he, he, he doesn't need to yell in here. Good morning, Westwood. So Gerald asked me earlier in the week just to spend a minute or two uh, talking about affliction and verse 71. And when I, he had sent me a text and I read it. And I've, you know, a lot of you know what I've gone through and the different struggles and so forth. And um, my biggest thing through it all is that I've wanted to learn to suffer well for the name of Christ. And I have failed miserably in that regard numerous times. Uh, but we all know that sanctification is a process. It's not a given. Uh, it would be nice if it was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it gives us all something to strive for day by day. And uh, it's, um, it's been a long walk. Uh, it's been a lot of issues. And my biggest thing that I've learned to suffer through uh, and to suffer well in is just physical pain. Uh, it's been a constant companion since March of 92. Had a accident in the military, and it just led to a, a cacophony of different issues. And uh, I am here today, uh, and you know, pain is a constant companion. Many of you have you know chronic issues and things like that. Um, and over the last three or four years, I failed miserably. Uh, so much to the point that um, I wasn't coming to church. I was, I mean, I just so wrapped up in this suffering um, and not doing it well that my neighbor came across and gave me the proverbial uh, foot in the rear and said, you you got to it, it was a loving. Uh, loving, was a Captain lo- Compassion. Yeah. Um, one of his high points. 
and said, you know, you need to, you know, your boys need to see you not only suffering, but, you know, having faith and trusting. And uh, it was a wake-up call, you know, because I realized in stepping back that I had become so insular in my process of trying to keep this thing contained that I was doing a lot of things uh, mentally, a lot of gymnastics, uh, where the, the, the freedom from it was right there. It was, you know, in Christ and Christ alone. And, you know, I never recanted my faith. I never stopped believing. I just stopped uh, suffering well. Um, and it has been beautiful for me to finally be able to step out of that. Uh, and, and it's not a day goes by that it's still not a struggle. Um, but being able to do it and to, to have a focus an outward focus instead of an inward focus, and to use the suffering uh, and overcoming it in Christ, it's, uh, it's good that I was afflicted. Um, I do look forward to that new body every day. That's what keeps me going many days, is that, you know, this is temporary, amen? Yeah. This is yeah. just temporary. Um, so I, I would just encourage you, uh, for those who are suffering, those that are afflicted, uh, just lean into Christ. Hmm. Uh, for me and for you, I can promise you that that's the only place of solace that we have. Hmm. All right, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Scott. The other person who uh, came to mind was Susan Bailey. Susan's not here today, but she did a little video for us. So, John, pull that up. And I wanted to share some of my testimony with you about all the ways that God is good and he really does work all things together for good for those of us that love him. And even through the suffering and the pains that life brings along to us, he is still with us along the path and we just need to continue moving on and seeking him. So to say my testimony started 13 years ago would be incorrect. I need to take you back further when I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior when I was five years old. My father was a preacher, so I grew up in a church, and I had wanted nothing more than to follow what my father had taught his, my entire life. I skip ahead a few years to when my mom passed away from breast cancer when I was nine years old. This was the beginning of my lessons in sadness and depression. Although I didn't know that's what those emotions were until many years later. Fast forward again, the first of many, it'll never happen to me, moments start. Getting pregnant at 17 was definitely not in my plan for my life. However, God brought so much good out of that experience, including the passion and desire that I have to help so many young or unwed women um, mothers raising their babies at Life Choices in Roxboro. Then in 2006, I began praying very fervently that God would use my entire body and mind to glorify him and also further his kingdom. I had envisioned something like being a missionary, somewhere overseas, or a calling along those lines. After praying for more than a year, God allowed me to go through the unthinkable and unimaginable by losing both of my legs above the knees due to an E. coli bacteria. 
While this was not something I would have chosen, it was, in fact, all a part of God's plan. The years that followed led me down a rocky and unstable path, yet God was right with me the whole way. While there have been so much pain and sickness these last 13 years, I can now see the vast amount of people whom I've been able to share Jesus with, and it's so exciting to know that he's not done with me yet. So I intend to go steady on with my Lord and Heavenly Father until he calls me to my eternal home. Now for years, I've wondered how I could have true joy and even be thankful for living this difficult life for him. Five years after I lost my legs, I heard my pastor preach about an old familiar passage in Daniel. That day, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego became more real to me than ever before. God could have caused the fire to go out or prevented them in some other way from going into the fire, but he didn't. His incredible plan, including going in and through the fire with them, not ever leaving their side. To me, that difference of just God keeping us out of the fire versus God walking with us through the fire made all the difference in the world to me. That day, I got it. It clicked. Fire will come. Trials and suffering. That's why we're here on this earth, is to suffer, even though we will not ever know how much Christ suffered on the cross for us. That day, I started being thankful for all God has given me and taken away in my lifetime. Being grateful for the numerous ways he blesses me and my family beyond what I could have ever imagined or planned. So John Newton said, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. And goes on to delineate how he prayed that prayer because God instructed him to pray that prayer. And then God began to crush him in answering that prayer. God began to lay him low and bring him to the point of despair as God showed him his own heart. Showed him his own issues. Aggravated him and made his woes worse. (laughs) It's what Newton sings and says. The psalmist ends this psalm by saying, Good is the word that comes from our teacher. I want to treasure it. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Don't let this slip by, church. The law of your mouth. It comes directly. Spurgeon said this, It is good for us to look on the word of God as though it were newly spoken into our ear, for it is not decayed due to its age. It is as powerful and sure as when it was newly spoken. God spoke this world into existence and the angels delighted over it. What delights our heart? What stirs our emotions to joy and to satisfaction? I mentioned earlier, David, David said, Your word, the word of your mouth is better to me than gold and silver pieces. You know, if this was a poor man saying this, we would say, well, he's speaking it out of jealousy or out of envy. He's talking about something he never had anyway, so it's easy for him to say it. 
David had all the gold and silver he wanted. And he's able to say, your word is better to me. And so it is with saints that have gone through this church and on to glory over the years. Some had money and some didn't. Not a single one of them laid on their deathbed thanking God for that money. Not a single one of them faced death any better because they had a 401k in the back. It meant nothing to them as they drew their last breath. What they held on to was the promise of God. The word of his mouth to me that even though I walk through this valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. They held on to that. And even if their children were waiting on an inheritance, it wasn't long before they saw that that indeed wasn't all that it was stacked up to be. So the legacy that this psalmist is leaving is not one that my silver and gold are worth much. What is more valuable to me than any of that is God's word, God's promise. It holds me and will hold you to the end. That's what you've heard this morning. You heard it from Scott. You heard it from Susan. You've seen it in the lives of others. Today's passage proclaims that God is good and what he does is good. And he wants us seeking that goodness through discernment and through judgment, through the ability to take his word, his statutes, his law, and apply it into our hearts and then apply that into what we see going on around us in the world. To understand and see God's goodness being played out and worked out. And see that there's countless millions of souls who will never understand and see that goodness apart from a relationship with Jesus. And God calls us to proclaim out that goodness, live it out in our lives. As Jesus said, so that they will see our good works. And not think much of us or think much of our church, but they will glorify God in heaven. And when they do try to forge lies and smear them on us, It's like Teflon. There's nothing to stick to. Because our lives of holiness refute what they're saying. That's what what the psalmist prays. And, And Alex Moyer says, while none of us would freely or quickly choose the school of hard knocks, we do so with the prospect, he says, of a graduation to a fuller life. That's what Paul said. I want to know Christ. And how could he know Christ? Well, I know the power of his resurrection. Well, how do I know the power of his resurrection? Through the fellowship of sharing in his suffering and becoming like him in his death. So we pray, Lord, you are good. You are good through it all. And what you seek to do is good. And God, I want to learn that goodness. I want to see that goodness. I want to experience that goodness. I want to taste and see that you are good regardless of what may be on my plate at the time. So do whatever you need to do, Lord, to teach me those things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and goodness in our lives. Father, I pray right now for everyone that Lord, is here or hearing this or will hear it and see it, Lord, that, Lord, the good that you have for us, the good that you are, is best seen and most perfectly seen in Jesus. And that though he was good in every sense of the word, he faced the horrible cross so that we could experience the goodness of your grace and mercy. 
Father, I pray that every soul that hears would, Lord, recognize what, what I've tasted and seen and experienced from this world, what I've tasted and experienced from my own broken heart is nothing but, it's not good. It's, it's empty. It's meaningless. I need the life, God, that you offer, and I need it. I need it now. Father, stir that person's heart to confess their sin and trust in Christ today. Lord Jesus, you came that we would have life, have a good life, have it abundantly. Our enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. So I pray, Lord, for that goodness to just break through hearts today. Grow in us as your church, Lord, good judgment, good discernment, good wisdom. So that we can taste and see and say and know what is good and what is not. And Father, we thank you that your desire is to teach us, grow us, and make us like Christ. And we thank you for that in his name. Amen. As we sing, I'll be down here.